For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, covering the week of media, marketing, and digital content news. This old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, friends. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 350. That's right, 350 shows, if you can believe that, of This Old Marketing for November 17th, 2022. And with me, as always, you know, as always, my good friend, my colleague, and one of the only guys who was continually hitting refresh on his browser to score Taylor Swift tickets, Mr. Joe Polizzi. I know you were, right? How, you were you were all over that. How did you know? For, I, I yeah. would totally see taylor swift in concert did you did you see the stat that oh it's unbelievable that she is the first person ever to have 10 singles on the top 100 which is totally manufactured time? by the way that is totally manufactured and is a totally genius marketing yes PR it is because she released but, them all at the same but, time normally you don't yes, do that that's the difference that's right that's exactly right and it is genius yep, she that's probably it's, I, her. why have why why an artist hasn't figured out to do this before is baffles me Right, but you know she she did and did and it worked. It's it's unbelievably smart. I think it's because the studio heads usually say that's not the way it's done. This is the way it works. We're going to do it this way. You're going to release them at this period and whatever this cadence. Well, because yeah, they they want that long term. Taylor always wants to say, "What's everybody else doing? I want to do the opposite." That's right, and she does. Yeah, the record companies definitely didn't used to like that because of exactly what you just said, which is they wanted the long. You know, they want a longer window, right? They want a longer release window for any particular album. But that represents so much of the old thinking, right? Of how, you know, how you release an album is one single and then a couple of months later, the second single, Mm -hmm. then a couple of months later, the third single, and then pretty much every other song isn't a single, right? If you got two or three singles, three, three, four singles out of an album, you were killing it you were crushing it you know and and basically it was all ba- on what your you know what your release numbers were for any one of those singles so if the second single didn't chart the third single probably wasn't gonna chart but you know they would maybe release it or not because it costs money right it costs yep. money and marketing and promotion and all those kinds of things but now because everything is so democratized it's no more money no more effort to release all 10 singles at the same time. Release them all as singles. and Release the that, Kraken. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, and have, just see where you end up, yeah. yeah. Have, speaking of, uh, of like superstars and music, have you listened to any of Lizzo's new album? I have. Did you, so I, for people who haven't listened to the album, she has, I think it's whatever, it's, it's either the first one or the third one where she talks for a minute and a half about her journey. Did yes. you listen to the little thing? So I, I, I've heard, I've heard pieces of that. Okay, so basically, yeah. one of her singles on her new, I think, special is her new album title. Doesn't or the, it doesn't matter what it is. And it was her new album, yeah. and she, uh, she talks about she wrote a hundred and seventy songs, hundred and seventy songs over the last two years, and picked the twelve that she thought best summed up the message she wanted to get out. And just as a content creator and a musician, I just was blown away by that. That she, (laughs) she wrote that many songs. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, I think that's a PR number two, but, but, but 
You're so, that's you're not so skeptical. Uncommon. I, I, well, you know, I mean, it's look, they're musicians or marketers. That's, you know, that was, it was funny because when I was a musician here in Los Angeles, when I first came out to LA uh, in the late 80s, and early 90s. And helpful safety tip, by the way, don't come out to LA as a piano player when the most famous uh, you know, genres are grunge rock and gangster rap. You know, so you don't get a lot of work, as it turns out. But what was interesting was I got to see and meet and talk to a lot of people in the record business. And the reason I quit being a musician is, is, is because being a musician is really about being a salesperson. It's, it's really you selling yourself and coming up with a sales and distribution strategy for you. And the rest of it, the playing of the music is sort of like, you know, that's sort of icing on the cake, as it were. And so I just hated that job so much. I just, I just got out of it. But what I learned there was, in, from the record company perspective, was that so many, I mean, when you go into the recording studio to record an album, most bands will record you know, 30, 40, 50 tracks and pick the 10 that are the best, you know, the, usually, by the way, the record company picks the 10 sure. that they're going to do. Um, and that's why, you know, you always went, wow, why, how are they spending millions of dollars in the recording studio recording an album when it's literally 10 songs? Like, you know, how, how do you, how do you not, you know, how, how does it get so out, out of hand? And it's because they're not just recording 10 songs, they're recording 20, 30, 40, 50 songs, and they have to bring in musicians for all those things, and they have to bring in people for all those things, and then they go through iterations and changes and, and all of that, and then you end up, either the band picks the 10 best or the 5 best or the 7 best or whatever, and then the, rec, you know, the record company gets their pick, and, and the PR you know, people and, and all of that. It's, it's a very complicated process. I don't know what it is today in Lizzo's case. Yep. I, you know, I don't know if it's sort of more because of the technology and how easy it is. You know, because in those days, by the way, you know, you had tape, right? You know, you were you were literally putting <laughs> magnetic acetate tape, you know, to everything, and you had to go through it and edit it, and it was a real pain in the butt. But now with digital, you can crank out 170 songs, right? You can you can literally crank out 170 songs in a couple of weeks. And just you know, and and really have studio broadcast quality for all of them because the digital technology is so good. Well, it reminds me of the uh, that section of the Bohemian Rhapsody movie where yeah. they're arguing oh, with yeah. the with the record producer. Mike Myers plays the record producer at the time, and they're arguing over what should be the lead song. And of course, Queen wants Bohemian Rhapsody, and he thinks that's terrible. It's not going to make it. Yeah, and that's right. Uh, and of course, <clears throat> they end up leaving and say a few and they left the whole thing yeah. and of course bohemian rhapsody went on to be multiple time number one hit yeah uh, did you watch the uh the beatles um the documentary i did not watch that and i'm i think i'm supposed <sighs> to right that's probably you, oh you are absolutely supposed to there is a it's you know it's one small part it for the music geeks out there if you haven't seen this it's it's amazing there's a there's a there's a piece where they actually are shooting uh, the the making of uh, the album, of course, which would become Abbey Road <clears throat> and all of that, and they are working with the tape, and they 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 need to actually you know because they're doing multi tracking, which back in those days was a really hard thing to do. Um, and you would you know you would record four or eight tracks, and then you would sort of overdub and overdub and overdub, and so you had to run the tape you know through the the machine again. 
And they started inventing new ways of doing that. And there's a scene where they actually pull out the tape and they sort of construct out of chairs and filing cabinets and all this sort of a Rube Goldberg machine to get the tape just exactly right so that it goes through the machine at just the right speed to be able to be in tune with all the other uh, instruments. It's just this to do all these crazy overdubs. And it's, you know, it was just the genius, you know. It was just the genius of, of what they were doing in the studio and, and, and inventing sort of genres of music at the time. It's, it's a fascinating I'll have to I'll have to watch it. You know, the last thing that you were talking about, musicians being salespeople, and yeah. that's what hits me the most is that if you go into the content creation business, even in content marketing, right, you have to realize yeah. that your number one, the one number one thing you're doing is selling. <laughs> you're selling to that's somebody. Right. And I don't think a lot of content creators realize, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer or I'm a content creator or a producer, a video, YouTuber. You don't realize how much of your daily time or weekly time is spent selling to somebody, selling a brand partnership, selling, if you're a content marketer, selling it internally so that you can get budget. You know, it's just everybody's a salesperson. It's just if the yeah, sooner you, you know, realize the, that you are in sales, doesn't matter what job, the quicker, the quicker you'll be successful. It, it, right. And that's such a great way to put it too, because it is all about the being a small, uh, being an entrepreneur is about being a small business owner. And the, the thing that like struck me on this, this was a few years ago. And I was actually working on a client that targeted small business lawyers, Right. And the, I, so I, I poured into this research about what it's like to start your own law practice. And what I learned there was in this research, not unlike your, you know, your content creator research, it was this research that sort of looked at all the challenges. Mm-hmm. And the, what, what, what they discovered was the average lifespan of you know, a lawyer hanging up his or her own shingle was about 18 months. And the and so the, and why eighteen months? Well, what happens is is that in that eighteen months, they graduate law school, they hang up their own shingle with their own name on the you know on the door, and what they realize is that over time, basically only twenty percent of their time is spent in billable legal stuff. The rest is sales, marketing, accounting chasing clients for money, yep. going to networking events, going to chamber of commerce events, basically building their business. And what they realize is that they actually calculated, miscalculated everything in terms of the amount of billable hours they were going to have ready to spend on clients. And they realize it's not as lucrative as it looks. And so they quit and join a big law firm. And so the, the goal, what we ended up with this goal for this, this company was, how do you extend the life of the, of the entrepreneurial lawyer to actually become something where they can move that number up from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, whatever the right number is. But more importantly, how do you extend the life of the small business lawyer from 18 months to you know 30 months to 36 months to five years to forever? And it's all about building that infrastructure. It's about building that ability for you to, you know, do the things that you have to do, which is usually not what you do for a living. Yep. And and then from a content creation standpoint, you have in order to feel like you can survive, you have to sell something as quickly as possible. It doesn't have to cover your nut. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It does yeah, right? You know, and we've all we've both been there. It doesn't yeah, have to cover everything, but you have to sell yeah. something. 
or you feel like you're not going to make it. It's absolutely true. I, and it feeds right into my, my advice when, any, when anybody comes to me and says, you know, hey, I want to do what you do, the consulting thing, the training thing, and et cetera. And they'll say, what, you know, I want to launch my new website or I want to launch a blog or whatever. I always tell them, I say, market where you're going, not where you are, right? Where, you know, so in other words, your website, it should say everything you want to do, right? That you're probably not doing today because what you're doing today is you're selling the stuff that you know how to do and that everybody knows you know how to do, right? So like in my early days, I did stuff like SEO and write copy for emails and, you know, all that stuff while I was purporting myself to be this wonderful content strategist because everybody knew me in marketing, right? Everybody knew me as a marketer and they knew that I could do stuff in marketing, but nobody knew what this content marketing thing was. So I had to pay the bill. So sell something. You got to sell, you got to sell something to keep the lights on. You know, it's funny. You and I were just, you know, cause we were talking about selling sponsorships for this old marketing for next year. And everybody puts a media kit together and all content creators put a media kit together. But most of the time, what you sell is not on the media kit. Yeah, <laughs> the media exactly. kit is, oh, here's the media kit, but here's right. the stuff that I'm not putting in there because it's just for you. Because this yeah, is custom. Right. Everybody wants custom. And, and of course, if you have that, it, it's just to level set so they know you're a professional and you have something. Media kit should say, here's your audience and here's why we're so good. But what you're going to sell them has nothing to do with what's in that media kit generally speaking That's exactly and people right. don't like to That's hear that and, and a lot of sales managers don't like that either because it's hard to control but when you're in media that's the truth. That's that's what happens. So you got to get absolutely used to it. is. So. It absolutely uh, is. We probably should I don't, before we get to this crazy crazy week of news. Oh my it, god. This always happens. Every time we do a special like you and I were like, "Oh, hey, we'll do a special episode." Which by the way, yeah. seems like a lot of you like it. Seemed to be popular. Yeah. Yes. Everybody yes. we did people our B2B content marketing special. But yeah. what a crazy week of news and I only yeah. ha- I have to make a football comment. Browns suck. That's all I have to say. Uh, and and good luck to your Cowboys. I know you you guys had a well. Brown, bit of a Browns week, are but yeah. Browns are Browns are having a bad year. That's there's no doubt about that. Um, and then the Cowboys. I think Aaron Rodgers is 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 some sort of demigod to the Dallas Cowboys. They just can't beat him. There's just there's something about the mystique of Aaron Rodgers that they just can't get over. I mean, you know, it's a. I think it's it's some. They should go see a psychiatrist or something at this point because. They've they've got Aaron Rodgers issues. I mean, it's 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 amazing. I mean, how the Green Bay Packers play lights out football uh, against the Cowboys and not even show up really for some of the other teams they've well, played is just it, it's yeah. Astounding. Well, I got to tell you too. I saw the one pass. I think it was the first long touchdown that Aaron Rodgers threw. He just flicked, to a rookie, by the way, to, to, a, rookie to a rookie who caught three touchdown yeah. passes, but he just yes. flicked. He barely threw that thing 50 yards yeah. or whatever, and it was perfect. Oh, yeah. It, I'm just yeah. like, he's, wow. You, the, he's, it, he's Aaron Rodgers. I hate him, but he's he's he is, he's Aaron he Rodgers for a reason. Now, yeah. the, the Browns play the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. We're getting some people over. That should over. go well for Yeah, you. we're getting some people yeah. over. Now, there has been talk that a huge storm, lake effect storm, of one Ooh. to two feet could be hitting Buffalo. Might be our only chance. All right. It might be Josh just, Allen just getting lost on the way to the yeah. stadium and <laughs> two feet right. of snow. I think we, I think That's we got right. a shot. 
I think we got that's a shot. right. Just put Nick Chubb out there on the field and see if if the, how things go. Oh, yeah. I don't know what they're doing. I mean, yeah, what? Just give yeah. them the ball a hundred times. You got a better shot than what they're doing. But whatever. I mean, I don't yeah. want to talk about it anymore. I was so excited all about right. the year before they got into all this Watson stuff, and now it's just pathetic. So yeah, yes. All anyways, right. let's let's let's, let's talk show. about this crazy, crazy, crazy week. Um, we will we will open up our show in just a second here, and we're going to talk about just basically close the loop a little bit on what's happened since we had our episode on Twitter. Um, we'll wonder if Twitter is actually doomed to bankruptcy or people really leaving Twitter uh, or who is leaving Twitter and are they really going to Mastodon? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Mastodon. I've been playing around a little bit with that tool and we'll talk about my experience there. We'll talk about the crypto crisis, FTX, uh, the amazing, interesting, wonderful, horrible, awful thing takes a complete header. Uh, We'll talk about what that means for the crypto and media market. Uh, We'll then talk about, well, where does that leave creators? And are they worried that these platforms are starting to punish them because of all these affiliate links? Uh, Also, (laughs) side note, water is wet. We will also talk about uh, a little bit of the obviousness by how they might be missing that. And then we'll close out uh, with the uh, NFT marketplace. And are they starting to do a rug pull of their own on royalties uh, for brands that have been sort of playing nice in the NFT market? Uh, I will talk a little bit about the under coverage uh, and what it might mean of the Epic Games versus Apple antitrust battle that's going on even as we speak. Uh, And Joe will talk a little bit about uh, video um, and the, uh, what is it? We're we're just talking about the, the video game company Valve. But yeah, and there's that's right. a, and the, the and online yeah. um, gambling issue that yeah, nobody's which talking are, about. That's exactly right. So a couple of video game and interactive entertainment yeah. ways to close things out. So uh, there we go. A Just a chock-a-block full of contra- controversy, as they controversy. say. Controversy. The I like it. The controversy, controversy as they episode. Say. There we go. All right. So we're going to open up here with our good friend, Elon, who is just not having a good couple of weeks here. Um, and we'll link to a couple of stories here in the show notes. Uh, the first one we will link to is from Live Mint, uh, but really anywhere you can find this if, you, if, you're, if you're looking for it. But basically, Elon Musk, uh, among other things that he seems to have all sorts of time to do except run a company, tweet, write letters, and talk and berate employees publicly on social media. He is warning of a t- potential Twitter bankruptcy uh, and what is happening right now as advertisers leave, as executives leave, as he's making employees leave. Uh, and basically, the article goes t- talks about how those that joined him, the banks and all those things, and taking equity stakes would also uh, lose out in some sort of insolvency process of Twitter. And basically talks about how Mr. Musk told Twitter employees in an all-hands staff meeting that he wasn't sure how much financial runway the social media company still has and that bankruptcy isn't out of the question. He And then we'll pair that with a couple of other uh, stories with regard to Twitter. But most importantly... Uh, for our discussion here maybe is to talk about a little bit about Mastodon um, and everybody seems to be leaving and although I would say it's a little probably inside baseball because like my wife and all my friends here in the neighborhood don't even know what Mastodon nope. is but 
those inside baseball folks that uh, are early social media adopters, media content creators, marketers have been hearing about Mastodon and the we'll link to digitaltrends.com. But again, a number of uh, outlets reporting on this and said, no doubt you've heard of Mastodon. It's a social media platform that's been bandied about as an alternative to Twitter, uh, particularly among users who aren't comfortable with the direction Twitter is going in now that Elon is at the helm. And Basically, this goes on to talk about what is Mastodon, and we can talk a little bit about that because I've been playing around with the platform, really diving sort of deep into it because uh, I'd heard that it was really sort of difficult. I did not find it as such. But anyway, what do you what do you what do you make of all this, my friend? Yeah, I would love to hear about Mast. I mean, it's funny about Mastodon. I've heard, well, let's say seven or eight people have emailed me or messaged me about whether I'm working on Mastodon, and this has just happened in the last couple of weeks. So I'm like, yeah. wow, has that come out of nowhere? So I'm really interested to get your feedback on that one. Let's just yeah. talk about Twitter. Yeah. Here's the issue with Twitter, whether you're a content creator, a content marketer, there's no stability right now, nor will there be any time soon that I can tell. The truth is, is that, and we know this, we're repeating a little bit, but you've got Elon who spent him and his partners, mostly his money, spent more than you know $30 billion overpaid for this thing, at least and you're desperate as the new CEO, Elon, is to find a business model. So you're going to do whatever it takes. And I don't actually have a problem with throwing all this stuff against the wall. But the issue is, as a content creator, we got to be concerned because you can't say, oh, I'm going to invest in Twitter spaces or I'm going to move to review uh, their email newsletter service because we don't even know what that's going to do, right? Everything right. is up in the air. And it's sort of like we're watching Fire Festival happen in front of us, <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting. It's super interesting, and we're all you know we're all just looking into the fire, wondering what's going to happen. the The thing that I keep thinking about, which is a little bit off the mark, but would Elon Musk have been successful with Tesla if it weren't for all the subsidies that he received from the U.S. government? Like, I'm just those are the things that I'm thinking about. Can Elon Musk, you know, PayPal outside of that, can he now be successful without assistance? Majors, I know the guy's brilliant, but this is nuts. I don't think the guy was built to be a manager. I don't think this is how oh, you think this. Is, yeah. I don't think this is how people should manage companies. I think you definitely don't want to manage it in so it's visible to the world. I think it's unfair to employees. It's unfair to human beings. Um, I mean, we probably need to talk about what was the letter that he wrote out. Um, he basically said that every Twitter employee has to expect to to work overtime, work days, yeah, you know, work blah, overtime, blah, blah, and yeah. on the weekends for yep. Twitter 2.0, or we're not going to be successful. And why? Where's the loyalty? Where has Elon showed any loyalty to anyone that's worked at Twitter? No. I mean, first gets there, fires half the people. Oh, I can't fire those people. I have to bring those people back. Fired some more people. There's. It's just a mess. So the so we're all basically waiting and seeing what happens. And I, I don't think you could yeah. do anything else as a creator. So. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, we've been advising clients um, and we've been, uh, you know, and I even said on my, my little news piece this week, which comes out tomorrow 
for CMI that, you know, our, our advice, take a pause, take a pause yep. from Twitter, especially in any big investments that you're going to do from ad spend to doing any big sort of influencer, you know, spaces, uh, events, or, you know, anything where you're going to invest a, a significant amount of money, we would advise taking a pause at this point and just seeing what happens. Because the interesting thing is, you know, when you look at the numbers, because it's a little, it's a little, uh, it's you know both people are right the people who are saying millions have left twitter uh and the people who have said that no actually there's not a lot of people leaving twitter both can be true and the reason it's true is because what i'm experiencing because i've been noting the you know the the who is leaving right all these celebrities are announcing their departure and you know a lot of our inside uh you know sort of the speaker circuit or the you know sort of marketing uh, thought leaders that have announced that they're leaving twitter if you go look, they're not actually leaving. What they're doing is they're saying, you know, they're pinning a tweet to the top of their timeline saying, hey, I'm left and find me here, Mastodon or elsewhere, and leaving their account open, which is everybody's doing the same thing, right? Everybody's sort of just going, you know, I'm going to back away from the fire for a minute because it's getting a little hot in here, but I'm going to leave my account just in case, just in case it gets a little, you know, a little too, uh, a, a little too hot or, or honestly, you know, or if it comes back. Um, and, you know, with a couple of exceptions, you know, I've noted that there's a couple of exceptions of people who have actually deleted all 20 or 40,000 of their tweets and then basically, you know, pinned up a, a note saying, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not here anymore. You know, no one's no one's at home and, you know, find me here or find me there. And I think that's really interesting because then both things are true, right? The active account is still active technically. Uh, you're still reserving your namespace, so you're not going to give up your name so somebody else can't go in and take it. Um, but at the same time, you're also gone, right? So you can qualify as being gone. So from a marketing advertising eyeballs perspective, you're, I got to imagine their traffic is way down. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see what happens as they start, you know, we, have, we haven't even talked about the blue check sort of controversy. They've now pulled that back, by the way. You can't even, I, I got my blue check just because I, you know, I, I wanted to see what the whole, you know, shebang was about. Sure. Of course, I've railed on the blue check thing forever. Um, so I did, I, I went and did it, but I basically, I guess I snuck in a window because they've now taken that away again um, till they sort out what's all going on with the parody accounts and stuff like that. It's just, it, it's just an effect, you know, it's a bad management, right? It's just bad management. And and it, it, there's no other way to put it, really. I mean, and I don't think he cares. I don't think he, he, he necessarily cares. This is a toy for him more than anything else. So for him, I it doesn't it's, really I, matter. I think it's like um, like you have an NFL owner or an NBA owner. Like, they don't own it to make money. They own it as sort of a... A, a piece that they can parade out that they have. Yeah. I think that's why he, of course, that's why he, I think he Elon sees this as an interesting engineering yes. problem that he thinks he can solve. He through wants engineering. to fix it. And that's right. Yep. He thinks technology can fix it. And what he's wrong about is that, you know, uh, Twitter is not the town square. It's the town, as I've said before, and you're not going to fix the town. The, the town is going to be the town, and, and including trolls and all. But I, the, my, and so, the funniest thing to me is the whole First Amendment thing. You know, that was the big issue. It's like, oh, you got to let everybody on, and this over-moderation, it's too much, and Twitter has too much control over that. Let's let everybody right. on and all these voices. But Elon, it's 
it's First Amendment only if it's convenient for Elon. Because as soon as these parody accounts come out, oh no, Elon blocking all them. Oh, yeah. I don't want so, that I mean, kind of. I don't want any. Fir, I don't want any First Amendment free speech that's going to affect me personally. <laughs> it's just sure. crazy. Yeah, yeah. It is Come just on, absolutely. Dude. Plus, it's nuts. a private company. So, there is no. It doesn't. It doesn't count. Private companies do that's not right. count in First Amendment. That so. is exactly right. That is exactly right. So anyway, just very quickly on Mastodon. Yeah, I want to hear all about. So, yeah. You know, it's. I, I'll tell you this. It's not nearly as hard as it's being made out to be to get on it. Um, kind of once you understand it's not, you know, dumb, simple, like signing up for a Twitter account is, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe one step above that. The, the biggest thing is that you sort of have to get into the concept of what you're doing is signing up in a neighborhood, right? Call it, you know, and some of them are public neighborhoods and some of them are private neighborhoods. And so, you know, in some, some of those neighborhoods basically require you to apply for membership. Some of them just allow you to sign up, you know, with an email address. And that's the really interesting thing about Mastodon is that for because it's decentralized in a way that it's uh, servers, basically, to, to use the technical term, but they are think of them as groups, think of them like Facebook groups or uh, LinkedIn groups, you are signing up for a to be aligned with a particular group, which becomes your handle at that point, you know, the extension of your handle. So then you can, you know, converse with all of the people in that group and you can follow and look at the federated group, which is all of the groups together, which would be the equivalent of all of Twitter, for example. So it's really quite lovely in that structure because you can join a big general group and there are plenty out there. Many of them right now are so popular that it's hard to get an account because they're just overwhelmed with how many people are signing up. Uh, or you can join a much smaller niche group, like you know, whether it's you're into a specific community, or you want to align with a political movement, or you want to align with some you know something else. You can join a very niche community, or you can start your own, uh, which is what I did. I started my own server. With our little experience advisors community, I started my own uh, Mastodon server and got it. You know, I pay for it. It's not expensive. Pay for it. Got uh, a lovely note from the people who are doing it um, in Germany. The only European, really, interestingly enough, uh, companies right now. There's there's one U.S. company that is doing it, and and they're not uh, they're they're not currently taking new clients for new servers because again they've been overwhelmed. But it was great. It's been great so far. I started up the server. Uh, it's experienceadvisors.io uh, and mastodon.experienceadvisors.io. Went out to my little community and said, hi, come on over if you feel like you know playing around with Mastodon. And I've had a couple of people come on over and, and start playing around with it. I've been following people, going through and talking with people. And it's been lovely. It's, it it's, it's feels very much like the early days of Twitter. Now, there are some things that I will say are challenging at the moment. One is speed. So because it's decentralized, it updates and the way that your content propagates throughout the entire network seems to be, to me anyway, my own experience, this is just my experience, is that it's not like instantaneous. Like it was on Twitter, you'll see sort of your tweets or or toots, they're called, um, uh, basically 
you know, you'll see them when you see them. Maybe sometimes an hour later, we'll, we'll replies will come in and that sort of thing. I think that'll get fixed. I think that'll get fixed in updates in the way, you know, once it starts to balance out and the, the, the load, uh, as it were, starts to equalize out. Or maybe it won't. Maybe it'll always have a challenge with, with, uh, with load times and those sorts of things, and that will be the end of it. The other feature that is everybody seems to want but it's a little hard to get over. There's a philosophical difference is, so Mastodon really mixes the idea of owned media and rented land very well. Because if you start your own server, you get the email address. They are your community. You, you, know, you can set your own rules. You can have your email addresses. You can you reach them when you want to reach them. There's no algorithm. You direct message everybody in there. It's, it's a lovely thing from an owned media perspective. But and then it shares obviously with the with the larger group. But as I understand it, and again now you may be reaching some of the ceiling of my technical knowledge and capabilities because I understand this is a a feature that everybody wants but isn't quite available yet. What you can't do is say I just want to close off my community and have my community be my community, but I want to also give them access to the to the rest of the world. In other words, I want to protect the content that's in my community. And but not and and have that content only be in my community, but also give them the ability to, uh, you know, so they have to. So the challenge there is, is and and it goes against quote unquote the the argument against it is it goes against the federated nature of it because then you're trapping users in your community with their content and they can't get it out. So it's actually more user friendly in that particular way. So you can build a walled garden, but you can't then sort of protect all of that, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that's a feature that everybody kind of wants, but what they want to do is they want to give that to the user. So in other words, if they want to join my community and be that through Mastodon, they can, but then if they, they already have an account somewhere else, they're going to have to have a second account for another server that is more public, et cetera, et cetera, if that makes sense. And so joining those multiple accounts seems to be the, the challenge and feature that everybody wants. Is like, how do you manage if I go sign up for experience advisors and I want to get that content, but I also want, you know, I also want to have an account in the general server or some other niche server where I'm a participant. So being a member of multiple servers is a little bit of an issue right now because you just basically have to sign in as whoever you're signing in is. So it sounds like what you're saying is, is it, it might be worthwhile to at least test it out if you're listening to this podcast to, to check totally. Okay. So you're in a hundred percent. Perfect. hundred percent. It's, it feels like very early days of Twitter and I'm hopeful for it. I really am hopeful for it because I love the way that it's mixed up. It's a little bit like having a Facebook. Think about it this way. It's a little bit like having access to Facebook groups, but also having access to Facebook. And it's, Wonderful, because you could then theoretically, and again, this is where it sort of isn't there quite yet, you could tailor your feed to whatever you wanted in whatever community or as broad as you wanted. It gives you a lot of power to shape your content, but it's not quite there yet. And we'll see if it actually goes there, but it's absolutely 100% worth uh, exploring and and we'll see if it takes off. We'll see if it actually takes off. I have I have high hopes. Well, for thanks it. for the overview. Very helpful. I will absolutely sign up and uh, give you my feedback on it. And the last thing I will say before we go on is, yeah, it's not a new company. It's been around since 2016. So sometimes no, it takes and you can see patience. Yeah. I mean these things don't happen overnight. And I think that 
a lot of people that are just hearing about Mastodon say, oh my God, it just came out out of nowhere. Well, six years. So <laughs> just yeah. like, and like and, a lot and of other businesses that way. out there. The software feels very, uh, the interface, the, the standard stuff that they're doing, all feels very familiar and very baked, right? It, nothing feels janky at all in terms of the way you interact with it and what's going it feels very much like the early days of wordpress when you get in there and and someone um a friend and family of the show Stephen davis actually suggested to me in a in a in a, in a mastodon toot he said it, it feels like this is you know early wordpress yeah and and it, it feels very much like that because it's 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 very much like it all right well you heard it here first or second yeah go go check there you it out go. all right well in, in other uh, crazy, crazy news uh, of the last week. So FTX, uh, which again, if you've not been under, unless you've been under a rock, you've heard about at some point, we'll link to the article in CNN just because it's a, a nice sort of general overview here, but uh, you would see it everywhere you look. Uh, aftershocks from the massive earthquake in the trillion dollar crypto industry last week continued to reverberate on monday says cnn prices of digital currencies fell yet again as the crisis engulfing the market deepened bitcoin the world's crypto's biggest cryptocurrency plummeted about 65 percent so far this year and is trading around the sixteen thousand dollar mark uh this was as of early this week uh and ether is not faring much better it's around twelve hundred dollars on monday uh, it basically all because this FTX implosion, which we can go through a little bit of an explainer on, because I I've I've I really went down diving deep here to see what's happened, and it is complicated. But basically, FTX, the biggest and most powerful, arguably one of the you know, other than Binance, uh, just took a header. Really, I mean, in very short order, in the last week, it it went through a complete meltdown. This article goes through a little bit of what is going on here, and it's a. I mean, there's no better way to say this than other than FTX was kind of a Ponzi scheme going on, and and they're going to find all kinds of untoward things, I am sure, as they get deeper into the investigation here. So I'm sure you're all over this. What what, what well, were your thoughts on on FTX's collapse? It's funny. I was as as many people know. I was on vacation, so my wife and I were on a cruise in Mexico, and you know I'm. In the morning, we did we both did a little bit of work just to make sure we got caught up. And F, I'm like, oh my god, what the heck is going on with FTX? I think when I left for the cruise, you had Bitcoin was at twenty one thousand. It goes down to sixteen thousand. It's so crazy. Yes, there's some shenanigans going on here at FTX. Yeah, and, and there's some learnings, and I, I want to go through some of of the learnings. But basically, and actually, you recommended uh, Prof G podcast has a has a nice little 20 minute overview with an ex economist and goes through sort of what happened and really this is yeah. a this is a, a an issue of over leveraging and uh sending money uh double dipping if you will <laughs> yeah, uh, well, yeah. Th- this FTX yeah. FTX was doing some some things they shouldn't have been doing they they were lending a company to Alameda which is sort of their hedge fund company and with the uh, with the asset value going down so quickly in a lot of cases, uh, these things were ended up being they didn't have enough money to cover these things, and of course you went down from thirty two billion dollars in value to almost nothing now, which seems almost unfathomable as we can go through now. A lot of this is long term. I know this seems really bad for crypto in general. Long term, this is probably a good thing. Um, but I have a couple takeaways. 
One is if you have tokens like Bitcoin, ETH on an exchange like a Coinbase, for instance, this is your opportunity to move those coins from the exchange to something you can control. I would recommend something like a Ledger cold wallet. Yep. Absolutely. So that because if you buy on an exchange like a Coinbase, they still hold your keys. And so what you want to do is move your crypto holdings to something that you can. It does take a while to learn these things, but you want to hold your private keys offline if you can. So that's a that's a, a lot of people had to learn the hard way if you had your tokens on FTX that just collapses. So we don't want to do that. Another thing I'd keep in mind with this is that you got to remember now, I think the the entire market cap of the crypto industry is 800 billion now or something like this. This is not necessarily a Lehman Brothers event no. because it's no. really no no. It's yeah. really small when you think about the entire financial industry. This is very sure. interesting to yeah. people. Uh, we're watching it like, "Oh my god, Sam Friedman, what happened, you know, the whole thing or whatever his name, Sam Bankman-Fried." Uh, yeah. who, who got into this now who knows if he's going to go to prison or what's going to happen because we don't a lot of people don't even know whether this is illegal because it's a bahamas-based company so we don't know what that's the right. rules yeah. are yeah we don't know what's there, going well there to are happen. none right that's what's so weird and complicated right? about this so anyways um good or bad regulations are coming i think they're very much needed hopefully the spirit of capitalism will be kept alive when that happens uh and my last sort of note here, and this goes for Web3 and NFTs and everything else. I mean, I've been into crypto since 2016, and this is as bad as I've seen it. And I was through the sort of a crypto winter in, in 18 and 19 where everyone forgot. I mean, if you remember, ETH got down to like 75 bucks. Yeah. It's now at 1200 So you got to put it in perspective. Like there's a lot of ups and downs. This is so early. I mean, I call this period in crypto the Alta Vista period for a reason. Because we are very, very early if you consider uh, what we went through with the internet. Um, so I'm still bullish on Bitcoin, on ETH, on certain NFTs with a solid use case or collectability. I still believe in tokenization as a business model. Uh, we're going to talk about something that will affect that as, a, as another... Uh, news item as well coming up in the show. But so I think we need to remind ourselves how early we are with this technology. But so if you're getting into it, which, you know, I'm not no financial advice here, but there's a business model here. There's something to keep in mind. You have to take certain steps right now because the technology is not quite there. The regulation is not quite there. So just protect yourself. And by the way, this is not over. This is this is going to take down a number of companies that have done the same. There's been so much over leveraging. Oh, yeah. And asset prices have come down so much in in some of these tokens that we're 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 going to see more and more of these companies go under. I hope not, but I have a feeling that we have not seen the end of this. Yeah. Somebody asked me. They said, "Can you explain this to me like I'm five? And I said, "Okay, yeah. Let me." And so I'll, I'll, maybe I'll try and explain it here. But it might be a, a nice primer because over leveraging and backing and you know scheming this and scheming that seems to be a little complex but the way i put it to this person who asked me i said so you've seen the movie it's a wonderful life and you know how that works right you know the five thousand dollars that slipped out of you know the uncle's pocket and harry potter you know takes it out or not harry potter, but mr. <laughs> mr potter mr potter <laughs> mr. Potter, <laughs> mr potter harry potter mr yeah. potter uh, takes it out and you know all that so imagine that george when he starts his little savings and loan issues a thing called George Bucks. 
and he makes this thing called George Bucks that, remo- that rewards everybody for putting in a little bit of a taking out a loan or putting in some money into the savings alone. And he gives them George Bucks as loyalty points. Well, that's what FTX did in this case. They gave these coins that they minted themselves and said, these are valuable. You should hold on to them because they will be valuable someday. And they're a reward for you putting your money in our accounts. Then let's pretend that George actually on the side as the $5,000 disappears uh, from the, the, the actual savings and loan, then actually takes out, builds another business, a trading business, where all of those George Bucks are traded on the open market. And then, without telling anybody, creates another company that buys all those George Bucks, artificially inflating the price, and uses that as a valuation to come back and say the savings alone is really worth XYZ amount of money over leveraged on things that don't even exist. Somebody then gets wind that this is going on and says, hmm, I'm going to sell all my George Bucks and driving the price down, which then everybody goes, oh, I'm going to take a run on the bank on my George Bucks, but then realizes that the $5,000 that Potter still took is out of the company as well. So they're not only over leveraged on George Bucks and overvalued there, but they're also don't have enough money to even cover what I had put into the bank so there's a run on the bank and everybody, you know, you remember that scene in This Wonderful Life sure. where everybody runs on the yeah. bank and George is able to convince them all, no, 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 you only take enough is what you need today to pay your rent or to do this kind of thing. And everybody goes, no, to give me my money. And they, you'll remember the scene where they have $1 left, one, you know, you know, wonderful simoleon that they actually stay solvent. Well, in this case, the FTX didn't say solvent. They were about $8 billion short uh, after that run on the bank, and so that's why they went insolvent. That's the that's the simplistic way of putting it. Very yeah, very interesting uh, example that you have there. Yeah. So yeah, it, so so the point is, uh, there are things that you can do uh, to make sure that you don't get affected. And I just feel horrible for those people. I I, I do oh, know yeah. of some people that have some had some money in an FTX, and uh, you know they lost a lot of their holdings, and it. And again, like always, it's the individuals that get hurt. And the big companies yeah. usually end up okay. It's That's the right. individuals. But so many people lost money in this. And, and again, um, hopefully just a blip. The technology, yeah. the t- there's, a, there's a use case for the technology. On the, the blockchain is, is very important. This is not the decentralized, idealistic uh, thing that we talk about. FTX was a whole yeah. told different animal going on in a lot of funny business. So yeah, so let's well let's jump really quickly here to that NFT thing because sure. I think that's related to this and we can cover that as well. This is a story coming from Ad Age, and this actually has implications not only for content creators but for brands as well. The headline here is that brands face new NFT dilemma as marketplaces start to pull back on creator royalties. So a number of NFT marketplaces, says the article as it opens up, have recently made creator royalties optional in order to sell digital tokens at lower prices, basically because of all the crypto stuff that we just talked about. This directly interferes with one of the core revenue streams for Web3 creators. Without effective workarounds, brands here could lose many of the key creative partners leading them into this space. Basically, the article opens up and and really explains how royalties are largely the reason why Web3 is considered a creator-friendly alternative, where these walled gardens main control over monetization. 
NFT creators have earned nearly $2 billion of royalties to date from all these brands, including Gucci and Adidas and, and Time and others, where you've got them selling NFTs of whatever they're making NFTs out of, and then there's royalties associated with that when those sales actually happen. And as we've now started to see is that these royalty withholding trends, it started back in August when PseudoSwap, a decentralized NFT marketplace that does not honor these royalties, began seeing outsized activities from all these buyers taking advantage of the lower prices Mm -hmm. in this depressed NFT market. OpenSea has uh, traditionally levied relatively sizable fees on its tokens, um, started lowering it, and is what the ad age article basically says is that it's a race to the bottom here. Um, what do you, what do you think this portends for those content creators who are starting to make their livelihood from buying, selling these NFTs? Um, as you've just said that, you know, maybe long-term it's going to be okay, but short-term do you think it's a, you know, it is it going to crash? Yeah, I think a lot of people, and I didn't realize this when I first got into it, that you can't set uh, the royalties on the blockchain itself. Right. They are yeah. enforced on the marketplaces like an open sea. And so an open sea, yep. again, not a decentralized company, private company, right. do whatever they want. They can either hold to it or not, depending on what their rules are. And so again, we're in a whole mess on rented land, like we always talk about. And so this is, this is a hard hit to creators who were getting so really believed like, you had musicians out there, you had artists out there that were getting some really good royalties. This is a good way to build a business model. So you're like, what do you do now? I think there's a couple of options. First is you could figure out a way to do it on Mint that you take, like when somebody mints it, you could actually take um, through your website. You can you may very be, be very transparent about it, but take a cut there. That's one way to do it. But what seems to be the way, and Gary Vaynerchuk has done this probably better than anyone else, you hold back a number of your NFTs so that if it's a success, you can sell them on the open market and you can get your money that way instead of yep. getting it on. And I think that's probably the easiest way to go. So if you, let's say you have a hundred NFTs, you only put 75 out there, you got 25, it's a success for everyone, great. You can release those later and you can make money off of it that way if you wish to. So that's another way to, to think about it. But it, it's definitely a, a, a hit. I think that, you know, we all believe that this was kind of a, you know, this this is it. This is what we were all waiting for as creators that we can make money off of our scarcity of our assets. And now you're like, oh, well, well now we don't have that option anymore. And you know, rented land hits us again. Yeah. So I think we, that, well, that's it, right? It's the, it, it says more about the marketplaces, I think, than it says about the concept of NFTs and the sale of them, right? It, it, the, the, you know, marketplaces have always been exactly that, the center place where we put a number of products or services for sale. And inherently, that leads you to want to create a profit for being the organizer of the marketplace. And in the traditional way to do that is to take some level of fee for what it is that's being sold in your marketplace. Now, what you can argue is, is that it, op- it opens up an opportunity for new monetization for centralized marketplaces that will handle decentralized things like NFTs, where it might be a fee. In other words, there might just be a rental fee for your stand or for your display in this marketplace. No, you know, no royalties at all, or all, you know, everything else just passes through. 
The interesting thing and challenge there, though, is is because they're the ones figuring out the financial transaction, they're getting charged by other intermediaries as well, credit card companies or banks or exchanges or whatever's going on. So that fee has to be in some way associated with the amount of transaction that you do because they're getting charged that way. So it's a really tough nut to, to, to figure out. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if somebody can start to figure out in just exactly the way you're 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 saying. By the way, if your business model, like with our never-ending tickets for Creator Economy Expo, we always treated it as sort of a Kickstarter program. It's like, hey, we're looking for right. our best our best fans, our most loyal fans. They're going to buy. We get paid up front a little bit more than we would for a normal ticket, and that funds our activities. D- done and done. Like I never imagined that people would sell these things on the open market. Like it mattered. So right. if you That's if you right. look at it that way, have you, had you launch that? a have new you, yeah, have you, you had that happen? I'm sorry? Have you had that happen? Have have people tried to sell yeah, we've had two the never ending sa- tickets on the open market? And we you know, okay. we have a five percent uh, and then we've gotten yeah. a little five percent little kickback from that those sales. Yeah. But yeah. that was never anticipated and it's you know I'm only trying to sell the ones that we have for mint. Uh, so that so if you're a creator and you have your Genesis project, how many NFTs you have, you sell those, you get your money, you keep your promises, and that you treat that like a product. And if you have yeah. another product, you do the same thing with that, and you make the money off of that, just like you would sell any other product. So yeah, yeah. So that so just, so that so we just there's one big option that we don't have anymore as creators. We'll see what what happens, but I don't think it ruins the model necessarily. So no, not at all. Not at all. It's good, you know. It's just again, it's a it's a little bit of the it's a fire. Maybe time to take a little bit of a pause and just look and watch and see what happens and make your choices in a considered way because we're thinking for the long term here. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our rants and raves, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like we scored Taylor Swift tickets or something that makes us feel like we're still hitting refresh on Ticketmaster. By the way, Ticketmaster, that's an old business model that just needs to die. Um, <laughs> you know, that's just a... You know, it's just bad. There's just no good way to make Ticketmaster work in the interest of consumers or the artist. It's just a, it's just a well, bad. Well, that's you know, see, a, that's that's it, the thing. And like, we're not there yet. I don't know when we're going to get there. But if you treated the ticket like a non fungible token, and and I wanted to sell you a ticket, and if you and I could directly, we we could, I could just transfer this ticket over to you and get that middle layer out of it, like Ticketmaster and SeatGeek and StubHub. Man, that would be much less expensive. I mean, these it's the fees of the reselling that's really the problem. Yeah, that's right. And get them out of there. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah it so, is ridiculous. Anyways. It is ridiculous. Empower the artist to be able to do that, Please right? Do. That's the Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you got? You want to go yeah, first? I'll go or shall first. I go yes, first? Yes, sure. I mean, okay. so our our friend Stephen Davis, who's a listener to the show, uh, we sends us stuff all the time interesting articles yeah. and videos that's a that's an understatement yeah we do but fa- <laughs> thank you Stephen. fantastic we were talking Stephen. we were talking about before that you should have your own newsletter just that you spend so much you time should. on your email yeah. send, sending yeah. it to us but so last thoughtful, week very thoughtful emails, very, they're yeah. wonderful so last week Stephen sent us a, a video about valve's gambling problem and if you're not familiar with valve i was very familiar with valve because valve is a com- is the company behind steam and if you're not familiar with steam uh, you probably don't have teenagers. 
uh, yeah. and, which I do. <laughs> right. uh, so yeah. Steam is is an online gaming distribution platform, uh, and I looked it up. They have about 120 million active users per month and about 50,000 games on the platform. And like I said, I've got uh, two kids, and they both have been on Steam forever, and we get them Steam cards for their birthday and Christmas. And now, of course, there's some concerning aspects of this too, and I'll go through that. But the video that I'll put in the show notes is really interesting. It uncovers what I would, I guess I would call a teen gambling problem that is not only happening, but growing on games such as CSGO. And CSGO is one of the most popular games in the world. 36 million players just last month. And on this game, you can buy what's called skins. And skins are you know, weapons and wearable accessories for this for a player. And you know, you want the the rare weapons and wearables are worth more money. So I knew all this stuff, but what I didn't know and the video taught me is that many users gamble their skins in order to get more valuable skins. And you really have to watch this video to believe it. I I could not I want to watch it again because I learned so much from it. But according to the program, Billions are being wagered on just CSGO, the game alone. Billions with a B. Um, almost exclusively, it seems, by teenagers 13 to 18 years old. So wear that for a while. So this type of activity is, you know, they've got doctors on this program talking about the long-term damage to children and making them prone to more serious gambling issues in the future. And by the way, when you look at it, it absolutely, they make it look like a slot machine. Because you, you buy this box, and it, it goes through the screen, and you, it actually seems like, oh, am I going to win? Am I going to win? And then you wager this, and it's all kinds of weird stuff. And the more I find out about online gambling and the incredible growth of, of course, the sports betting industry that's taking over sure. the world right now, I'm almost inclined to think that gambling may be one of our society's bigger hurdles in the next decade, if it's not already. I mean, a lot of people might think it's already, but I... I keep finding out, Robert, these online gaming things that are going on. Nobody's talking about this. Like, there's no, there's no parents that know that I've talked to that know that when they give their kid a Steam card, in a lot of cases, they're plugging in these third-party gambling sites that they can sell these things, and they are just blowing money left and right. And, of course, when you get into gambling, you kind of go down that rabbit hole, and I feel really bad about this whole situation. So it's just something to be aware of if you have kids, if you don't have kids, if you care about society at all. Watch this program. It's important that you know, and this is just the, just the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. So it's it. I 100% agreed on that last sentence, right? It, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we just blew California, uh, just blew online gambling out of the water, right? Sports betting out of the water. There was two two initiatives uh, that would have made gambling on sports uh, online, you know, through the apps, et cetera, legal here in California. And both of them were turned down in a resounding wow, way, okay. which, which actually really surprised me um, how, you know, unpopular they were. So I don't know whether that's, you know, depending on your point of view, that's either kudos to California or, you know, short-sighted of California from a, from a revenue standpoint. Um, but yeah, they just turned it down. It's, it's, it, it, but it is just the tip of the iceberg here. This is not, this is not going away anytime soon. And I mean, yeah, and, I mean, uh, look at, look at, we've got the world cup coming up. Look at, oh, look yeah. at European football. I mean, almost every Jersey is a sports betting company on the front of it. Uh, it's, yep. it's crazy how this is integrated into everything that we're doing. And then we wonder what we're doing for the kids that they're prone to this in the future. 
uh, I mean, thirty to forty dollars a day on Steam leads to thousands of dollars in a day in the future yeah. because you want you, you you've got that addiction going on, and I'm yeah. I'm I'm scared for we're for Biff a lot of the and kids. Back to the Future. Yeah, I'm really nervous <laughs> about what's going on. Anyways, what do you got? Yeah, uh, we are looking at a very similar uh, thing, actually. Weirdly enough, uh, ironic. We don't obviously talk about our rants and raves in advance, but this is a a lawsuit that's going on right now with another uh, interactive entertainment company. This is Epic Games, uh, and they are. This is something that is not being. You know, it's interesting to me how little coverage this is actually getting. This is a, what we'll link to in the show notes is uh, an article from TechCrunch. Uh, that talks about the Epic Games versus Apple antitrust battle. And it's in the appeals court now. Uh, So just a quick explainer for what it's all about is, so Epic is suing Apple because what they're saying is, is that by going through the Apple store, which is the only way you can get an Apple iPhone app out into the world, you have to agree to basically use their payment options, right? And of course, Apple takes a big chunk of that. And Epic wants to put in and figured out technically how to put in other payment options into things like Fortnite, so that you can buy stuff, etc. that didn't go through Apple. Apple, of course, turned them off of the, the platform. And of course, now they're in court trying to settle it all. There is a much bigger stake here because it sounds like it's oh this is only just Epic versus Apple and trying to figure out some money deals et cetera et cetera but this is this has really broad implications and it's worth watching uh, if you're at all interested in things like walled gardens of media and how we actually consume our content and who we pay to consume that content. Uh, Epic is, and the first opening salvo of this, by the way, is all about the metaverse, right? Because this is not about Fortnite. This is about setting up big, which Epic has just put a billion dollars into their metaverse efforts. And if they have to pay, you know, when Apple comes out, and it's going to come out soon with their headset uh, and, you know, metaverse-ish strategy for setting up the physical hardware to do that, you can only imagine that there's going to be app store apps that will really, you know, work into that entire platform. That's what this trial is really all about. It is the future of how do we access metaverse-like environments or interactive entertainment environments and whom do we have to pay or how do we pay in such an open, uh, in an open way or more specifically to what Epic is saying in a way that doesn't sort of be a walled garden. And it's just a fascinating trial. I'm actually, I can see both sides here. I I absolutely can see both sides of the positioning and I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. I've followed Epic's idea and it's like, yeah, they're, they're trying to do the best they can and build innovative products and they want to get paid for it and they should get paid for it and it should be an open platform. But then I see Apple saying, well, but we're trying to keep things safe and we're trying to keep things away from people who do bad things, you know, with those kinds of options and make it easier for people to get scammed. Uh, Just even to the point of the show we had today, I I see both sides of this. I think it's a really complex issue. I think it's a really interesting issue and I'm going to be following it really closely. So just just really more of a commentary than Mm -hmm. anything else that go, you know, go get go watch it it's because it's it it will affect all of us for as a content consumers as content creators as marketers uh in the idea of walled gardens and how you build your online properties 
all of this is going to have implications coming out of this judgment. It is scary to me that basically two companies in the United States control the flow of information. And yeah, Google and Apple. And it, yeah. it's it's something has to be done. And generally, these companies have sided, I think, for the most part, on the side of good. But it doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way. Yeah. And uh, we better we better be careful. So, yeah, absolutely right. Well, as people go to thisoldmarketing.site and visit us and listen to this episode and listen to and wait with bated breath for next week's episodes, what are you going to be doing next week? Well, right now I'm listening to somebody print a document oh, <laughs> that's excellent. coming. Yeah, good. That's excellent. I'm like, yeah, this is good, perfect good timing. Somebody has decided yeah. in this house to print a document while I'm on a podcast. That is very, very nice of them. I'm going to have perfect. a discussion uh, right <laughs> Anyways, I am. Uh, I don't even know what I'm doing. We're gonna watch the Browns game on Sunday. Oh, I'm running. A, I'm running a half marathon on oh Sunday. So that's good for you. That's that's yeah, ambitious. That's kind of what I'm doing. What are you doing? Uh, I am. We are neck deep in client work. It, it is uh, feeling really just so uh, wonderful about where our business is right now and how busy we are. Hopefully, we can architect it in a way that we won't be busy over the holidays. But um, I'm not gonna look that gift horse at all. Uh, just really just heads down working on client stuff, getting ready for next week, Thanksgiving. We will record a little early next week so that we can have an episode next week uh, and, and all of that. So yeah, there you go. Hey, by the way, tune in next week because we will actually have an episode next week, even though it's American Thanksgiving. But in the meantime, just remember everybody, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Market.